This podcast is sponsored by the Music Player Network at musicplayer.com, the premier musician resource for keyboard players and beyond. Since the year 2000, the Music Player Network has been the go-to source for news and views on music technology, playing tips, and gigging help. The Keyboard Corner is one of the longest-running keyboard forums in Internet history, with guitar, bass, drum, and numerous recording and music tech forums also on offer. Frequented by weekend warriors, manufacturers' representatives, and professionals alike, MPN provides an invaluable resource for any musician, and it's 100% free to sign up and use. Go to www.musicplayer.com to see for yourself. Welcome to episode 23 of the Keyboard Chronicles, a podcast for keyboard players of the gigging variety. I'm your host, David Holloway, and it's great as always to be here with you. And once again, it's brilliant to have Mr. Paul Bindig with me. How are you, Paul? I'm feeling wonderful, thank you. Good. Um, now, this one's a bit of an exciting one for you personally. Um, we'll talk about that after the show. But um, our guest this episode is Mr. Roddy Bottom. Now, Roddy would be best known to most listeners as the keyboard player in the phenomenally successful hard rock outfit, Faith No More. Um, but as we'll learn, Roddy's a musician with a prolific and diverse output. So it includes everything from, you know, the indie pop sensibilities of Imperial Teen, which I, I personally just love, the dancey electronica of Crickets and the doomy metal of Nasty Band. And they're just all his current projects. Add, add to that his current COVID isolation inspired collaboration with his partner, Joey, and his film score and opera work. It's fair to say Roddy's not only an excellent keyboard player, but a truly creative artist with plenty to share. So let's jump in and have a listen. Roddy, can't thank you enough again for joining us. And a Saturday night, it takes true dedication to give up part of your Saturday night to talk to some Aussies. David and Paul, thank you for having me. I was flattered when you reached out. I'm happy to be here. Thanks. There's nothing I'd rather be doing on a Saturday than hanging out with you guys. I appreciate it. And um, so we've been asking uh, most of our guests over the last few months how they're keeping busy during these challenging times. And knowing how many um, projects you're involved with, I can't imagine you are struggling to keep busy. But yeah, tell us what you've been up to um, in this year of lockdown. Yeah, it's a crazy challenge. Uh, You know, when the whole... Uh, pandemic started coming down. Uh, I was in New York and we had planned Faith No More shows. Uh, in Australia, we were starting our Faith No More shows, and then we were going to Europe and then we were going to tour America with the band Corn. Our whole like next like four months were all mapped out. And when the COVID hit, it became clear pretty quick that that was sort of off the table like that wasn't going to happen so that took a little bit of re-strategizing uh my boyfriend and i we were in new york at the time and there wasn't even any covid here yet Mm. but we were just sort of clocking what was going on in italy you know when it first started in early march 
And just judging based on that, it was like became really clear, really fast, like what was going to go down. And I live in New York and it's like, you know, I mean, we're all on top of each other here. So it's honestly like it's uh, a city. It's a nightmare for the pandemic. So seeing it coming was kind of horrifying. And uh, even before, like, there were many cases here, my boyfriend and I kind of freaked out. People kept talking about in terms of, like, what they were going to do in case of emergency. And people kept talking about in terms of, like, what are you going to do? What's your emergency plan? What's your exit plan? Like, people would ask questions like that, like all my friends. And it became super scary. And we were like, what is our exit strategy? Like, I live in New York. We don't have a car. I don't have a car here. It was like, what are we going to do? So coincidentally, at the same time, my mom started getting really sick. And uh, so just kind of on a whim, we uh, rented a car and for like, you know, like maybe a week uh, in advance. And we said, well, if we get to that point, let's just like have that option. So we got to that day on the car rental day and just decided like, you know what? It just started feeling really crazy. So we just got in the car and we drove to California. Wow. Which was a really crazy drive. <laughs> but on the way out, go ahead. No, I was about to say, yeah, that, that's a hell of a drive. It's a really long drive. It takes like, I mean, if you drive straight, it takes like four days. But it's like we couldn't really fly. And we were just trying to be super, super safe. So we got in the car and we just started driving to California. And we were going to take care of my mom, who was really sick. And she... uh you know, in order to take care of her, we had to quarantine for a couple of weeks before. So on our way out there driving, Joey, my boyfriend, is a musician. And this came up, like, what are we going to do creatively in this time to deal with what's coming up? I mean, we could see the writing on the wall. We were going to have to, you know, be quarantined and alone and away from people for, you know, probably months. Mm-hmm. So on the way out to California, Joey brought his guitar and we went to this weird town that my, my mom has a house, like in Oxnard, California, which is up maybe 50 miles north of Los Angeles. So we went there to quarantine. But on the drive, we sort of uh, started, started talking about a project to do that would keep us busy and keep us creative through the quarantine. So Joey had his guitar with him. We had a piano at the house that we were going to to quarantine in. And on the way out there, we just started like kind of like researching microphones and a good recording software to use. And so by the time we got to where we were going to quarantine, we had that stuff delivered. And we had a microphone, the stand-up piano that I had growing up with was at this house, Joey's guitar, and a computer. So we sort of set up a plan just to start a project, just to record some songs. We thought we'd record like a handful of songs. And we've been going out for a year, and we don't really, you know, we'd never made music together, so it was a bit of a gamble. But uh, we just kind of set up shop, and with nothing else to do, we kind of just started writing songs. And we wrote, like, uh, pretty much, like, over the course of time, we wrote an album's worth of songs, which is, like, 11 songs, which today, actually, we just finished. They're all mixed and mastered. And then in the place that we were staying, too, it's kind of near the beach and near really... California's really pretty. It's a lot like Australia. But we made a uh, we made a couple of videos with our iPhone just by ourselves. We recorded all our songs and our parts by ourselves, and we just kind of that's what we did. We set to tasks to sort of staying creative 
and being kind of productive. Yeah, that's brilliant. And that was a huge help. That, yeah, that, that, that was great for a while. Um, and we are definitely going to talk about that project a little bit later on as well, so I do want to come back to that. Sure. But, um, let, let's then start out with a bit of a potted history of Roddy Bottom. So let's let's talk about your you know earlier years, childhood, what got you into music, you know, that, that sort of stuff. Yeah, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles, and my mom is a really great piano player, and she sort of encouraged me to start taking piano lessons, which I did at like five years old. I started playing piano, and I played that classical piano till I was probably about 17 or 18, and I moved to San Francisco, and, uh, you know, it's a, it was a way different vibe. I moved up there for college and started Faith No More with my kind of childhood friend, Billy who plays bass in the band. We started the band up there in San Francisco. I bought a keyboard. I bought an old Oberheim keyboard. And we just started writing songs and started the band up there. And just over the course of time became what it became, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> that's a very good plot of history. And, and what when you first learnt the piano, it was something you took to immediately or it took a bit of growing to love? You know, I always kind of loved it. I had three sisters, and I always tell people this when their kids are, like, starting to play instruments. Like, the three sisters, like, all of them took piano lessons, too, but it didn't stick with any of them. But with me, I was really into it. Like, I really got into it. I practiced and practiced and practiced. I loved it. So my ratio is like, yeah, like, maybe one in four kids will sort of, you know, gravitate towards that, given the opportunity, it feels like. I. It, it's just something that's sort of in my blood and something I've, it's really, honestly, like the only thing I can do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, not a bad thing to be doing. Talking about Faith No More, it's obviously a band that's got a very eclectic and innovative mix of styles, and you know that that proved to be quite unique and, and very popular worldwide. In in the band's canon and list of songs, where would the listener most hear your musical sensibilities and influences? Um, you know, when we started, it was like, we kind of came from a super like post-punk, punk rock sort of vibe, you know, and we were all very into like heavy rhythms and a big, heavy kind of bombastic sound. And if you would have that sound, kind of the sound that we made, uh, without keyboards, I think it would verge on something that's really dark not metal so much, but like it would be a different thing. I think it was my place yeah. in the band to sort of, <clears throat> I mean, keyboards, you guys know this, keyboards as keyboard players, we sort of add, I'm going out on a limb here, but it feels like the keyboards add sort of a feminine sense mm. to a plethora or, or some sort of like project. Like Agreed. without yeah. keyboards and Faith No, Faith no More, it, it's a really sort of macho, tough, like heavy hitting musical experience. But huh. if you add like adding keyboards onto that sort of uh, opens up the scope and makes it kind of uh, a more beautiful thing, a more soundscapey thing. Or I just like to say like it, it's, it, there's a, there's a, a more female quality to the music that there wouldn't be otherwise. And at the time too, like it, there weren't a lot of bands in our scene that were making that kind of music that had keyboards. So I think it did enable us to sort of stick out a little bit. It was really different. 
Yeah, I think so. And I, you know, my opinion is that's one of the reasons Faith No More was so popular. Was it? Was it sounded a little bit different to a lot of your contemporaries at the time? Yeah. When 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 we're listening to a lot of that stuff, you know, we can hear the, the big pads, the, the synth and string pads that you're laying down, which which create uh, you know a, a wonderful canvas for the rest of the music. But there's also lots of examples of, you know, you talked about your, your classical playing growing up, and you can hear a lot of arpeggios being played and solo lines that are. That are really quite beautiful and they add significantly to the style and texture of the songs. I'm, I'm curious, Roddy, in the songwriting process, was it easy for you to find places to incorporate those sort of ideas? I think so, yeah. I think it was an easy thing to add to because, like I said, I mean, without it, it's a whole different uh, ball game or a whole different sound experience. But, um, it was easy to add something to because it's sort of like, I mean, it was kind of an ego boost. Like with just by playing keyboards, it changed everything. So it was sort of like, uh, yeah, it felt really good to be able to sort of like be able to change the sound in that way. Um, and I don't know for you guys, but for me, like pads are such an easy thing to add. Like in any recording pro project I've been involved in, like, to add like uh, just a pad is such a substantial sort of like addition to a sound. I heard someone talk about it at one point, like it's glue. And it does, it just sort of like, it's really easy to just put down a chord or a pad that sort of just like adds a cohesive quality to the music. And it really just kind of like, I mean, we're keyboard players so we can say this, but it sounds a lot better. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. <laughs> and so, I mean, while we're talking pads and string lines, um, Roddy, what what was your go-to gear in those early years with Faith No More? And you know, what have you stuck with, and what have you changed? That you know, what what's your go-to gear in that respect? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I started with this Oberheim keyboard that I bought from this weird musician in Los Angeles. We were in LA one time, Billy and I were, and I was looking for a new keyboard. I started with like a Roland Juno Six, I think was the first keyboard that I had. And we were using that for a while, and it was a little bit limiting. And uh, we were in L.A., and I think we saw, like, an ad in, like, the Recycler, which is, like, just, like, used gear, sort of, like, paper in Los Angeles. And this guy, his name was Dwayne Hitchings, I think. He wrote, we knew that we looked him up, and we <clears throat> found out, or he told us, like, but he was selling a keyboard. And we went to his place, to his studio, and bought this big Oberheim OBXA from him. He had written uh, the theme for Flashdance. Oh, yeah. That was his. That was his. Yeah, that was sort of his uh, crowning glory. But we bought this keyboard from him, and it was really big. We didn't have a case, <clears throat> and we brought it up to San Francisco, and we used that for a lot of years. And we would like we would always just wrap it in a blanket and bring it to our gigs, and I never had a keyboard stand, so I'd usually play like on an ironing board or a table that I would find at the club, and so we had that for a long time. Then at some point, it sort of turned into like when sampling became a thing, that sort of looked like a cool, viable, sort of like new frontier way to go, and I bought, uh, you know, the first emulator sort of like Sort of like more pedestrian keyboards were these things called Emacs's. Do you guys remember those? Did you yeah, have those absolutely. Keyboards? Yeah. Yeah, I had one of those, and then I had two of those, and they ran with, uh, you know, generated by floppy disks, 
And we used those on the road for a couple of years. No, I guess like most of the most of the career of Faith No More, probably like the last sort of like I don't know, maybe ten years of Faith No More, we used those. We had one of those Emaxes, then we had two of those Emaxes. And uh, those were my sort of go-to. Then we broke up, and when we got back together, I sort of switched to using um, that program. What's it called again? Mainstage? Oh, yep. In the Logic software. Yep. Now, I've used that on all of the past sort of like Faith No More tours we've done. That's sort of been my go-to. But a while ago, like Faith No More, what we had an anniversary for the very first record that we put out. It's called We Care A Lot, and uh, we were re-releasing the record on Billy's label, and Chuck, our first singer, uh, agreed to do some performances with us as we re-released that record. So uh, those Dave Smith people, you know those people that make keyboards in the Bay Area? They were putting out a version of the Oberheim, and it's called an OB6, I think is what it's called. Is it OB6? Yeah, I think it is, yeah. And they had just put it out, so I went and checked it out. We were in San Francisco, and I went and checked it out at their place, and they were super nice and sort of hooked me up and gave me a good deal on one of those keyboards. And it has all the sounds that were on the old keyboard that I used for the first We Care A Lot record. So I got that keyboard and I limited myself. I'm a big fan of like parameters in that regard. And so I, I got that keyboard and we did those shows with Chuck that celebrated the very first Faith No More record. And they were, you know, pretty much the sounds that we used in the making of that record. So it kind of like worked out great. And since then, I love that keyboard. That's the one I use in any other band that I played in since then. Like I'm in a, weird, a couple other bands, but all those, all those bands I use that keyboard for. Oh, I was just going to ask Roddy um, at, at the Hellfest uh, concert. What you had, you had a keyboard there? It was all draped in white to match the uh, the dressing for the stage. What was that one that you were using there? That was just like I was using main stage on a laptop yep. that was like to my side, and that was just a MIDI controller. I can't remember what it was. It's a weighted MIDI controller. I can't remember who made it. But yeah, like it was right. just white because we like decorated all our stuff white. That was sort of a yeah, yeah. Tour. The set dressing was amazing. It looked fantastic. Thank you. I was going to ask. Uh, you mentioned uh, we care a lot, and um, you know, obviously the the recent uh, reuniting with 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 Chuck Mosley. That the actual song we care a lot. I read uh, in an interview somewhere. I believe you did that. Your inspiration for that song was uh, well. You were a lot of the inspiration for that song because of your love for, for hip hop and that sort of thing. Are you able to talk to that a little bit? Yeah, at the time that we wrote that song, we I think we had made. I know we hadn't made a record. We were just still sort of writing stuff. And yeah. uh, we lived in San Francisco, and uh, I think the first Run DMC record came out. And at the time, too, like Africa, Bombada, and the Soul Sonic Force. Those records came out. There was a big song that came out that was everywhere. It's called Planet Rock. That was like the first sort of fusion of like, like Africa Bombada and Soul Sonic Force. They like sampled Kraftwerk. And yep. that was huge for us. That was like, oh my God. And the sound of that, Billy and I heard it, I think, and Mike Borden, the drummer, we heard it like on the boardwalk in Venice or something. And we're like, what is that? It was Planet Rock yes. by uh, Soul Sonic Force. And it was just this new sound that we'd never heard before. And it was like this crazy, like electronic infused rap that was like, uh-huh. 
it kind of blew our minds. So we started kind of like going down that path. And then shortly after that, the first Run DMC record came out. And that was sort of a new frontier also in a way like they were using like electric guitars and they had sort of this toughness that was like we really kind of related to too. So we were like, I don't know, we were just listening to a lot of stuff like that at the time. I mean, kind of all over the map, but that was one thing that we were listening. And I was really into like rap at that point. And most of the Faith No More stuff that we would do, we would usually start with bass and drums and we would do create what we called loops we used to call them we would just do a loop and we would repeat these loops we were really repetitive and our first performances were just like we would play like a four bar eight bar measure like over and over and over and over again and we just thought it was super heavy and intense and we loved that vibe so it kind of lent itself to sort of like uh, a, a rap sort of vibe it was just repetitive and sort of like a heavy drum thing and we had the song the music and then we put sort of chords to it and it kind of became we care a lot and so yeah i wrote the words uh for we care a lot at my mom's house it's funny my sister just sent me today since i went to los angeles and i took care of my mom my mom passed away during the whole covid thing it was a really intense time but my sisters are now like moving everything out of the house that we grew up in and they just sent me a picture just like Today, it's a picture of like the lyrics for We Care A Lot. I had written them at my parents' house. I remember it. And they're exactly as they were. They're all on a piece of paper, like handwritten. I was like, oh, yeah, look at that. But that was sort of the motivation for that was for sure. Like we were fully inspired by Run DMC. It was like, you know, we were going. To, and I don't even think like Chili Peppers weren't really even a thing at that point. I think Chili Peppers started happening right around that time too and i just bring them up too because they were sort of a similar band that was like in a similar scene that were sort of yes. using or appropriating like rap music or more soulful sort of like sounds like that but it was really early stages of sort of like a lot of melding of different musical genres and it was kind of what we started out doing like trying different things and combining different things different like the rap and the like hard rock and heavy beats and we just sort of went from there must have been an exciting scene and an exciting time for you guys yeah you know in san francisco it was really exciting it was really yeah. really fun it was like super cheap to live up there now i don't know if you guys have ever been to san francisco it's like become this sort of like you know, software-driven, yeah. sort of new computer money town, and it's so expensive. Like, as a kid, if you were to move there today, there's no way you could make it work. You know, you could yeah. live, like, in an outlying area, maybe. But when we were there, it was, like, super affordable. Like, Billy and I lived in an apartment. It was a beautiful Victorian apartment in the Mission District of San Francisco, which is kind of, like, the best neighborhood, like, such a great neighborhood. And it was, like, we paid... Each of us paid like $160 a month to live there. It was so cheap. And we would just eat burritos and burritos were super cheap. And the music scene was really just like insane. Just like really driven by artists and really like boundary pushing people. It was a super exciting time. I'm super privileged to have been in San Francisco in the 80s was just a remarkable time. Just talking from a performance perspective for a moment, when we watch Faith No More video clips and live performances, we see you as the keys player 
up the front of the band, lots of physical energy in your performances, uh, which is absolutely appropriate for the way the music is. But but I would have thought that's perhaps atypical for a lot of keys players. We, we often find ourselves hidden at the back of the stage behind a wall of gear. And I'm just wondering, Roddy, from your perspective, is, is that a, a liberating thing to be out front or a scary thing? Or is it something that you haven't thought much about? It's, it's just what you do. You know, I started out playing keyboards in that realm. And it was like I was saying before, like at the time we started doing that band, like it was there weren't keyboards in bands like that. And keyboards, yep. as we know, are a little bit dorky looking on stage. You know, it's kind of like, <laughs> For it's, sure. not, it's not a cool look. Like, I'm not even talking guitar. I mean, that's really bad. But like that, a keyboard <laughs> is just not as cool as a bass or a guitar or drums. It just looks, it's static. You know, it doesn't move. And it's just yep. sort of like, uh, it's just not very cool. So from the get-go for me, it was sort of a real challenge to sort of just like, you know, I'm just going to fucking commit and make this work and be badass on the keyboard. So I just like, you know, like sort of, I don't know, I was like a showy kid too, but we were, and the type of music too, sort of like we would play these hypnotic, trancey sort of loopy things and we would get really into it. So we were all just like, pretty much headbanging and moving around a lot. And that was sort of the energy of like that music scene and what we were coming from was sort of that anyway. So there was not a chance I was going to get on stage with this, you know, kind of static, you know, uncool looking instrument and be uncool. So it was kind of a challenge, but I was just like, all right, you know, we're just going to rock and make this work, you know, and sort of that's what it, what it kind of became, I guess. Yeah, well, as I said, I think it's totally appropriate for the style of the music and, and your role in it. But um, it, it's nice to see to a keyboard player up front rocking it out. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I've just got uh, – uh, now, I'm going to go in a really strange direction here, Roddy. This is a very self-indulgent question. As, as uh, David mentioned, I'm from Adelaide and uh, – Adelaide is a small small city, which I know you've been to, touring with Faith mm-hmm. No More. And I also know you guys had dinner at a restaurant called Africola, which is a South African restaurant. And they have all sorts of uh, indigenous South African food there. And I believe you guys uh, were given the opportunity to eat the whole cow's head. And I want to know if you did eat it and can you recommend it? You know what? I can't recall. I kind of think so. Like, I'm not that adventurous. Like, I'll really honestly try anything, but, like, the singer yeah, of our yeah. Mike, is super into, like, pushing the boundaries and trying weird things. So, yes. like, Cowhead sounds familiar. <laughs> I feel like we went there, but I can't really attest to the taste of it. I don't remember, which kind of says something in and of itself. Like, I don't recall the taste <laughs> of the Cowhead. So, in that regard, I can't really <laughs> recommend it. it. It wasn't amazing and it wasn't horrible by the sound of that. That's good. Yeah, I have no recollection of the taste of the cow. Head. That's right. Yeah, very good. Well, thanks, thanks for answering that. David may have to edit sure, that question out of the podcast later. But, uh, I had to ask. No, I, I, I think that's ask. great. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, Roddy, let's move on. But what is it? What part yeah. of the cow head is it? It's like the inside of the cow's head? Like the cow's brains or something? Well, I assume it's the cheeks and the, and the brain. But uh, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The cheeks, of course. Yeah, the jowls. That makes yeah, sense. It's, I would it's assume, sounding more and more so. familiar. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, if that wasn't enough to make you vegetarian, I don't know what would. Um, 
Uh, so, Roddy, just moving on to Imperial Teen, um, which is obviously a very, very different project, and you guys released a new stu- studio album this year, Now We Are Timeless. Um, just going back to the formation of Imperial Teen, uh, you know, what led to that? Can you describe how um, you s- do the songwriting and collaboration with your bandmates in contrast to when you first started? Yeah, Imperial Teen came about, like, uh, Faith and More had been together for, like, probably 12 years. And I don't ever, everyone reaches a point in their life of juncture. And I had sort of reached a point where, like, just a lot of things had happened in my life. And my father had passed away, and it was, like, a really intense time. And I just felt like it wasn't, I wasn't doing what I wanted to do with music. And we were still doing Faith No More, and it was sort of a machine at that point. And we were touring and making records, and it was great, but we'd been doing it for a long time. And I just sort of like, uh, we were all kind of growing apart in the band a little mm-hmm. bit, it felt like. Uh, I mean, we're still close, but over the course of years, it was just like, it kind of became uh, an intense job, and I didn't feel also like I was giving it my all there was a record in which like, I kind of just didn't even feel a part of and I just like, didn't really want to do this heavy, heavy thing. It felt like something that I had done like as a kid and it didn't feel like that appropriate or that sort of relevant to me anymore. And I was listening to a lot more sort of indie rock kind of stuff. And, uh, I met, uh, Will, the other guy who's an Imperial team with me, it's two women and two men. I had met him in Los Angeles and we were just kind of playing music. And two of my best friends in San Francisco were, Joan and Lynn, two really good friends who were in a, uh, they were, they're kind of my best friends. And we all just started playing, writing music together, um, just kind of on a whim. And we said, let's just form a band. So <clears throat> we kind of um, set up a schedule for ourselves. We said, all right, let's form a band. Let's, let's play a show in three weeks and let's make a record. Let's just make ourselves do it. So we kind of just like set about like, we just like, our sort of like credo was just to like, I kind of wanted to play something I hadn't played before and I didn't know how to play guitar, but I kind of wanted to play guitar. So I kind of learned the guitar and I kind of learned drums a little bit and we just started kind of playing together. And our whole kind of moto was like, kind of like, we felt like it was a really neat sound to sort of like hear people playing musician, playing instruments that they hadn't ever played before, like children experimenting on new instruments. And that was sort of like our theme. So we just like Lynn, the drummer, who was an awesome drummer. She was in a band called The Dicks. And Sister Dolba Happiness, she was playing bass. Joan had never played bass before, so, uh, guitar before. So she started playing guitar. And we just all kind of switched instruments a lot. And just kept it kind of challenging and fresh for ourselves. And we wrote a bunch of songs really fast. We played a show and then we made a record. And it came out super well. It was our first record. It was called Seasick. I think it was like 1996, mm-hmm. maybe. And it just made me feel good, which is where I needed to go at the time. And so we were still doing Faith No More at the time, and it was kind of like a juggling thing for a while. We went back and forth, and we would make records. Faith No More was making records, and we were, I was kind of touring both bands. So it was kind of a little bit of a schizophrenic sort of like plateau, but the Imperial team was kind of like keeping me happy. I was playing with people who were my best friends and it just felt a little bit more real for me. And we were coming a little bit from a place of the heart mm. more than sort of Faith No More who had 
just become sort of big at the time and I, I felt disconnected from and it just kind of gave me a new perspective and sort of helped me through a weird time in my life. And as a testament to like the Imperial team, we're, we're still our best friends. I was just talking to them all before we got started talking tonight. And we've still like, we make records, we make records like probably every five yeah. years or something. And we don't sell a lot of records, but we love what we do. And I love the records that we make and we keep doing it. I love it. And I can't, can't emphasize enough to our listeners that may know Roddy mostly from Faith No More. It's, 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 uh, you know, nearly a polar opposite, and there's some beautiful keyboard sounds on some of those songs. You know, on each of the albums, it's just yeah, it's a real pleasure to listen to. Let alone all the other. Thank yeah. you. Um, and speaking of beautiful to listen to, I know you've scored um, a few films too, Roddy. H- how did that first um, come up as an opportunity for you? Um, and it came up like late '90s. I was sort of at that time, and like Faith No More was sort of winding down. It's something that I had always like dreamed about, sort of like doing score stuff. And I had gone to film school. That's what I went to school for when I moved up to San Francisco when I was a kid. So I've always sort of been into film stuff. And um, I think at some point, like, you know, ASCAP, you know that uh, songwriting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. ASCAP, do you know what that is? ASCAP BMI. I was a member of ASCAP, and I just sort of like started sort of like poking around and looking at what ASCAP offered in terms of like, and they had this like um, film scoring workshop that they offered. And you had to sort of audition to get into it. But it was really intense. And they took 20 people in. And over the course of two weeks, you do this sort of crash course of meet a lot of people in the music industry who do film score stuff. And at the end of the two weeks, you write a piece to a, a, a clip. And uh, you write it for like a 42-piece orchestra. And you score it out, and then you go to a soundstage, and this orchestra uh, performs your piece, and you record it, and you do it to the clip of a movie. And I sort of did that. It took place in Los Angeles. I did it, and I really loved it. And I just kind of had this aspiration of, like, Faith and More was kind of, like, winding down, and we kind of knew, or I guess we'd be even broken up at that time. So it wasn't imperative that I stayed in San Francisco anymore, and Los Angeles is really the hub of kind of like entertainment and filmmaking stuff. And it's where I grew up. So I kind of just had this plan to go back to Los Angeles and sort of start a career with that. So I took that course and then I just started sort of like trying to get work doing that. And I did. It was it was a good time. I I liked it and I didn't like it. I loved it and I hated it. And I made money and I made no money. And... I still love doing it, but I honestly don't do it that much. It's just like it kind of became a weird thing, too. I did it for a while and had some really good experiences, uh, some films I really loved. And then I even did some television stuff that I I really love the television aspect of it. It's like with the TV. I don't know if you guys have ever done that sort of stuff. With the TV series, I started doing kids stuff at one point. And with the kids stuff or TV stuff, it happens on a weekly basis. And the turnaround is so fast. And it's super liberating to not like put a whole lot of thought process into what you're doing. Like you have to work so fast that really all you can do is just like play whatever. Just make it work really fast because you'll do an episode and then the next week you have another episode that's due. And the week after that an episode. And it's just like so fast is this conveyor belt 
in which you just really have to be on your toes. And that was super fun. I really liked doing that. It was exhausting, but I really liked that for a while. It was fun. And with, with late teenagers now, Roddy, I um, grew up with Fred for many years, so I, I'm aware of your oh, work on shit. that. Oh, shit. You know Fred. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Fred was so awesome. He was like uh, some guy, this guy Clay, who directed that movie. Somehow we just hit it off. And that was a dream come true. Like you would look at what I've done in the score world and kind of pick that out as like something that might be embarrassing or something I didn't like. But it was a dream. I loved it so much. It was kind of like Fred, for you guys who are listening, is a sort of like a, I don't know, how would you even describe him? He's like this kid who started a sort of a, a show on YouTube yeah. in which he sped up his voice. And he's like a kid. And he's just sort of like, he can't get the girl. He's just like a real showboat of a kid. And he was really popular on YouTube. And Nickelodeon kind of picked him up. And my friend Clay made this movie with him called, it's called Fred the Movie. And it's this kid, it's kind of like Pee Wee Herman, but a little low grade Pee Wee Herman. But the music was super fun. It was really like uh, cartoon esque and fast moving and lighthearted and was really, really a good experience. So we made that movie. And then Nickelodeon aired it. And I think. It was like the most watched Nickelodeon movie that ever yeah, happened. Had, like kids had loved over 7 that. Seven million thread. tune in for it initially, from what I was reading. And um, I love that. Yeah, I love that you said, Roddy, that some people would be embarrassed and that you're not, because obviously, nor should you be embarrassed, because it's great. But I, I would actually have as a badge of honor in doing the research that movie, from a movie viewpoint, not a music viewpoint, has a zero percent rating on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. I would have that front and center on my website. I think that's absolutely brilliant. Because it shows you how people is don't zero get it. mean people. Yeah, just, people don't like it. Is that what well, zero I sh- means? Well, I assume that means critics don't like it. I, I know it was loved by wow. people, so I think that's yeah. great. Like I would be proud of that. I loved it. Yeah. I stand behind it one hundred percent. And that kid is so cool. Yeah. And he was such an enter- entrepreneur too. He was like genius kid. And from that, then they made like night of the living fred and camp fred (laughs) there were sequels that were equally successful and after that we even did like a fred the show and i scored all of that and it was like those were the glory days i loved it so much that is brilliant so roddy if you look at um faith no more imperial teen and you know a couple of other uh, projects and bands you've been involved in so there's there's nasty band which is a, a real doomy metal vibe and crickets which is a real electronica dance uh, vibe really diverse musical palette it must be great to be able to explore those things and i'm curious are there any other musical ideas you're yet to explore that you might be working towards in the future <clears throat> good question um yeah i don't know like when i look when you bring that up it's like oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah those are re- i mean they are they're all really different flavors like the nasty band is more a theatrical thing like it's really it's a crazy scary thing on stage we have like yep. two identical twins we have like a really heavy rock drummer a heavy guitar player we have a guy on stage who paints himself usually one color and he's just like screaming his brains out on stage into a microphone that's never turned on. And then we have like kind of an 84-year-old singer. And we're all sort of covered in mud and do this like really heavy, crazy, hypnotic music. 
It's a real crazy theatrical sound and weirdness. So that's very performance, very performance oriented. By the super sound. performance, yeah, super yeah. arty and crazy and scary. And then crickets. The other side of that is crickets is more like ESG, sort of like Tom Tom Club, like really like simple. And that was an exercise, sort of like coming out of a lot of like having done a lot of recording and sort of like I don't know if you guys get this but when i get into a studio it's really typical to sort of like overdub 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 and just keep as a keyboard player it's so easy to add things mm -hmm. and add things and add things that it enhance the sound and generally i find work really well but uh crickets uh is a place i went with jd my friend she's in latigra she used to be in that band latigra she was in the band called men and michael who was also in men with her but we kind of like uh, developed this sort of like formula in which we like kind of took everything away from the music in a way. Like we wrote songs and then we did our best to like take things out of the mix. So the re result is a like super sparse, like empty sound. But it really hits hard in that way, in its simplicity. Um, those bands, I don't know, I kind of... It almost seems like I kind of do one thing and then I need to do another, like doing Nasty Band, like which was full on, like noise collage and so full. And then I kind of had to sort of like try something else and strip down uh, in the uh, sort of like crickets realm. So it's sort of like, I don't know, situationally, I think I moved to a different project and tried different sound because I need that in my sort of like musical heart or whatever. Yeah. Um, and also just like friends, like all of those people are New York really dear friends of mine. And sort of that sort of dictates it also. Um, but as far as like where I go, I'm not sure. Like a while ago, a couple of years ago, I did an opera. I wrote an opera. That's why I kind of moved to New York to write an opera. And I'm a big opera fan. And this was the I Sasquatch, wrote, the Sasquatch opera. Yeah, the Sasquatch opera. I yeah. kind of uh, did that a couple of years ago, which is a really intense and liberating, really fun experience and that kind of came off of the like when i was doing a lot of film score when you do film score i don't know if you guys have done have you guys ever done that kind of work at all only briefly yeah it's fun but Go you're on. like at the end of the day sort of like what kind of like was a letdown for me is it's like you're kind of sprinkling some musical sort of like statements over someone else's project which is cool <clears throat> and it works and it's fun and it can be a good sort of like exercise but at the end of the day i just kind of felt like i want to do the project i want to be the person that, that you know if it's not a film it's like i want to be able to call all the shots mm. and make all the decisions so i kind of after after doing all that film score stuff for like a while i was like i just kind of felt like i owed it more i owed myself more than that so I moved to New York to do to do Sasquatch specifically. I was like, you know what? I'm gonna move to New York. It just felt like the place to go to 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 write an opera. But I came here and I said, I'm gonna move to New York and I'm gonna write an opera. So I, I set out to do specifically that. That was sort of another like kind of reactionary thing. But uh, the point I'm getting to is I, I did that and it felt really, really good. It was really hard to pull off and it lost a lot of money and it's really hard for opera to make money yeah. and it was like uh at the same time it was like one of my proudest achievements so i kind of like i'm at a point right now where 
with COVID, it's like we have all this time on our hands. I'm sort of like, I need to do another opera. So I'm, I'm kind of think I'll, I'll go there again. The, I mean, your question is, I'm trying anything new, like. Not really. I think I want to try another opera is where I'm kind of going. And just if you want to lose a bit more money, Roddy, maybe it's time for a jazz record. (laughs) I'm not there yet. You know, I'm not really like a jazz guy. Are you guys really into jazz? No, no. I mean, I I appreciate it for what it is, but no, no. I kind of do a little bit more and more, but I've always said like, no, I'm going to save that for when I'm older. Yeah. And I (laughs) I'm not quite there yet. I don't do jazz, but I do opera in a yeah. big way. Yeah, that's cool. I'm, I, I like listening to jazz, but I'm not a good enough player to no, actually play jazz. Same. So, uh, but uh, that's yeah, the thing I, too. It I, takes a real sense of intuition to like pull that off. Like you hear stuff, like listen to Mingus or whatever, and it's like, God, that person just feels that shit. You know? Absolutely. I don't know if I don't. I don't. Yeah, I, I'm in the same way. I don't think I'm like that good of a player. I don't think I could pull that off. <laughs> Hey, um, this this probably brings us uh, to a, a good point to talk about something you mentioned right at the outset of our chat, which was your your project with your boyfriend Joey, Man on Man, and right. you talked about your your trip and the, the sort of the COVID inspired situation that that got you to the, to that project, and you released the first song, Daddy, in May. And as far as I understand it, you haven't released any of the other tracks yet. So I'm interested to uh, understand what we can expect to hear from Man on Man in the future. What have you got for us? Yeah, uh, we started the project. I mean, it's kind of been a while now because it was, I mean, it was specifically a project done in quarantine. That was how we started doing what we did. So that was sort of the theme of where we were. And we felt like it was a really liberating experience for ourselves. And a really nice thing to share with people who are also in quarantine. So we had like everything we did, we did in that crazy house that I, I talked about earlier. And we just like recorded everything in this little house. We made that video, we made the video, we made two videos and uh, made them by ourselves uh, with the help of one person at one point, but basically by ourselves in that same house. And just sort of like, uh, kind of just started sort of building something slowly but we we, we started off with the sort of idea of maybe doing like maybe four or five songs but we were, ended up recording uh 12 songs so now we have a full record and now we're kind of at a point like deciding what to do with it we kind of did at the time we decided well let's just put out singles and we'll make videos and just do this and this will be an exercise and we did the first single and the first video, and we got a huge response for it, I think, because it's basically like us jumping around in our underwear. And it's sort of in a weird way, like spoke to like a gay community that hadn't really been represented so well. And we got super, like, super sweet feedback and really like developed a really nice sort of a collection of people who like kind of identified with what we were doing. And it was like, whoa, okay, we've got something here. So we made another uh, video to a second song that we did. And then kind of uh, the uprising happened here in America over George Floyd and sort of like the racial inequality that kind of like came into our lives like super suddenly. And I don't know how that affected you guys in Australia, but in America, it was sort of like everything stopped. We were in the middle of COVID. I mean, for me, it was so intense, too, because my mom was dying at the same time. But we, like, 
uh, everything just stopped. And at the time, too, like Crickets was supposed to put out a record right then. Like our record was coming out. And so Joey and I thought we'd, okay, we'll wait and we'll let Crickets have its moment and put out the record. And then we'll put out our second single, the Man on Man single. But uh, the uprising yep. happened and it was like, it just it just felt super disrespectful to sort of like indulge in anything other than the politics of the situation that was going on. So we kind of like, it just wasn't an appropriate time to release any music. So even the Crickets record was supposed to come out and we just kept postponing it and postponing it saying, it's just not time. We just didn't want to take away from the cause of what was going on in the world with the struggle that was happening in the uprising that was super important. So we just kind of like kept silent for a while. Uh, then we finally ended up putting, we put out the crickets record finally. Uh, I think it came out like a month ago, a little over a month ago. And we let that happen for a couple weeks. And then we uh, just like uh, next, I guess a week from tomorrow, we're going to put out the second uh, man on man single and video it comes out in a week. It's kind of a drag. It's been so long, like, uh, and it was such a quarantine-specific project. We wanted it to come out like in that time frame, but it's sort of been a while. But it just is what it is. We were just respecting the uprising and the movement of that. We were just sort of giving that space, but yeah, super long answer. Yeah, no, I apologize, but like next week, next Monday, we're going to release our second single. Uh, it's called "Baby, You're My Everything." Uh, it's kind of a, a love song that we did together, and um, at that point, we're gonna kind of figure out how to put out a record. We have a full record, eleven songs. We just got it finished mixing it today, actually, and we're just kind of trying to figure out where to put out a record, what putting out a record in today's like sort of like this world, this new world, like how it even works. And we're trying to figure that out, how to do it. But I'm super crazy about it. It's like really crazy mix of songs it's super nice it's just me and joey and a friend of his named joey a second joey who plays in that band paramore and oh, plays yeah. with um haley who's in who's in that band paramore he did a couple tracks with us but mostly it's just me and joey doing kind of love songs singing about ourselves singing about like isolation singing about our relationship it sounds indulgent it's not it's not that indulgent it's just a little bit indulgent, but it, it speaks to people, and uh, it feels really, really good. I'm really excited about it. Um, we, yeah, can't wait to hear yeah, it. Well, as you said, the, the, you know, the first single got some really positive feedback, um, just looking at the, the, just the general commentary on it. So it's, um, it, as you said, it's obviously, it's obviously connecting with people, which is great. Uh, yeah, that felt really good. Like, we got, like, really nice messages from people just across the board saying thank you so much i mean it's just like i don't know if you guys you're not queer probably but like maybe i don't know whatever but like the queer sort of community and the presentation of like what gay looks like in the mass media is like kind of a squeaky clean sort of pretty boy sort of vibe <laughs> you know and we're clearly not that like we're both like kind of like i'm older you know we're big guys big hairy guys and it's a different look so it is a representation of queer culture in a different way that I think hasn't really been explored. And we got super great feedback from people just like saying, thank you so much for, you know, putting this out there. It means so much. I feel represented in a way that I hadn't. And it feels good in that way, too. It feels like political in a way that kind of surprised us. 
That's excellent. Yeah, I think maybe it's 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 a very it just seems feels very authentic, and I think that might be what's resonating with people. Yeah, well, thanks. Um, and to go from a, an authentic, positive experience to the absolute opposite, which is our standard question of the most memorable train wreck you've ever had as a keyboard player, righty? So it can be in the studio, it can be on stage, whatever it is. What what's the the biggest glitch you've ever had? You know, there's been a couple. I think it's always with keyboards, it's hard because you don't know where, it's hard to isolate where the problem yeah. is. You know, just like from a tech standpoint, we had like, I think one of the worst shows we ever played, we had gotten to Japan and we sort of rented a keyboard there and something was happening on stage. Like the stage was kind of like a little bit bouncy so the keyboard itself was on like a keyboard stand and it was sort of bouncing up and down. And I mean, not heavily, but it was like vibrating a lot. And the MIDI, I was using MIDI at the time and the MIDI just kept getting disconnected and we couldn't figure out what that was. And it was because the vibrations, like the MIDI cord was not good or it, it's, I think sort of the MIDI in into the keyboard was off a little bit. So we could not get sound and we couldn't figure out in the course of it, what the issue was. And it was just like one of those like crazy, like isolated times when like we were just on stage and it's Japan and it's huge. I think it was our first show we played in Japan in a super long time when we were doing our reunion tour. And it was just like, I mean, there was no keyboards and there was nothing we could do. And it's sort of like, I mean, as well as the band is sort of like, you know, you're on there, up there on stage and your gear isn't working. Like, it's ultimately, you know, your fault. It's my fault. And everyone's looking at me and knowing like how, you know, like it's just the keyboards aren't working. It's just like, it just couldn't then get worse. <laughs> Good story. The next question, the next question really is what what's on the horizon for the coming year, if it's possible to define that in the current situation? Yeah, we kind of, um, the touring the Faith No More was supposed to do last summer, um, a lot of it has just been rescheduled. So we're going to come to Australia in uh, next summer is the plan. If everything goes well and the sort of like COVID situation works itself out, we will come to Australia and do the tour that we were supposed to do uh, last summer. And then we'll do Europe also in the same way that's happening then uh in between now and then i'm not really sure i just ended i've been doing this like crazy um song share a day on my Bandcamp account uh which has been like every day i create a piece of music and i share it and i just reached a point today where i was like it was uh i think it was number 24 and i was like done I can't do this anymore. So I feel like I kind of need a break just for a sec. But then again, like Man on Manic comes out next week. And that doesn't really entail anything other than just like putting the video and the song out there. But I think we'll probably try and figure out how to do that live and create a show that hopefully we'll be able to share with the world. It's such a weird time because like, what do people do if you're not like writing? Like, what do you do? Like, performers. A lot of my friends here in New York are like all performers, and performances isn't really a thing right now. Like, you uh -huh. can't perform. 
So it's a good question. Like, what do we do? What is the next year? Mm. Yeah. No, really. Are you, are you guys, you guys are both in bands. Are you guys bands playing at all? No, same, Roddy. Not, yeah. not really. No, no yeah. not really. It's tough. It's hard. I mean, that was sort of my, my premise was starting like the sort of like daily thing was at least like, if we're going to be stuck inside, it's still the same thing like Man on Man was that too. But it's like, if we're going to be stuck inside and we can't go out and we have to isolate, like, let's at least write and be creative and keep that going. So maybe I will. Maybe I'll try yeah. the opera. Maybe I'll start writing the opera. I, yeah, I feel it calling you. And um, speaking of being isolated, let's talk about Desert Island Discs, Roddy. So five oh, right. albums you Desert couldn't Island. live without. All right, hold on. I'm going to look it up. I wrote it down in my notes. Okay. The first one, my first Desert Island record is the very first Roxy Music record. Are you guys Roxy Music fans? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I love that record. That was one of the first songs, first sort of records that I heard when I was a kid that was sort of like, I don't know, I'd heard David Bowie before, but like Roxy Music was like unapologetically kind of flamboyant and chic. And sort of combine like queer like fashion elements to what they were doing, and it was really sophisticated to me. And I've never gone away from that record. I love it so much. Right. And uh, let's see, uh, the second one, oddly enough, is a record that I don't really know so well. But every time I go to it, it kind of uh, puzzles me. And I think there's something to be said for that. But it's the soundtrack to The Wiz. Have you guys ever listened to that? Oh at yeah, all? yeah, I haven't. I don't know. I've listened to the soundtrack, but I've seen the movie, obviously. Yeah, it's yeah. so weird, right? Yeah, I don't know. It's a nut I've yet to crack, and I figure that would be fun to have on the island. Yeah. Uh, also on the island, I'm going to have uh, Prince's record, 1999. Just feels yeah. really makes me feel good, and it's some good, like sort of like dancing. So I could sort of get exercise and dance and feel like a rhythm thing on the island. That feels really good. So I'm going to bring that record too. Uh, also for some atmosphere, I was always a real big fan of Throbbing Gristle. And if you guys know that, I love Throbbing Gristle so much. 20 Jazz Funk Greats was like a record that really like spoke to me when I was a kid. When I first moved to San Francisco, it was like this weird, art-damaged, crazy place yeah. that kind of still i go back to a lot and it's really a relevant record to me and then the final one is david bowie's hunky dory i really love the songs on the record this the the songwriting is so strong and so emotional great picks um great picks roddy and i think it shows your your own diverse approach to your own music and um yeah look it's been an absolute pleasure having you on and um we look forward to seeing you down here but you know many many decades more of of great music from you. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. You guys are really sweet to talk to me. And there we go. Um, I think Paul, you and I have talked um, off mic a few times about how genuinely brilliant some of these um guys and girls are talking to us and and rod is no exception just a genuine um interesting guy who loves what he does yeah really passionate and you know really humble and the you know the comments he made to us 
after we went off air, just you know, thanking us for reaching out to him just shows you. He's, look, he's just somebody who loves to share his music and has a genuine passion for what he does, and, and we love talking to those people, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mentioned before the show that you had a particular interest because in, you're you're a bit of a uh, a very large Faith No More fan. I mean, I, I've loved what they've done. I've even played some of this stuff in in bands, but you, you're another whole level. Yeah, I, I, yeah, they're just a brilliant band. And for anyone who might be a more casual listener to Faith No More, if you really dig into some of those songs, you, you can really hear not only how great the songs are put together, but Roddy's contribution as well. And yeah. he talks a lot about that in the interview, obviously. Yeah. And um, and I can't recommend Imperial Teen highly enough, and Crickets. I just love all that, you know, electronic-driven music. And um, it, it, yeah, they really know how to put a great song together. Mm. So there, yeah, there we have it. Um, so uh, you know, as always, we'll be back in around a fortnight, um, and look forward to speaking with you then. In the meantime, our website is www.keyboardchronicles.com. Uh, we're on Facebook at facebook.com keyboard chronicles and on Twitter at the keyboard chr1. Uh, as always, we have our good old fashioned email, which is editor at keyboardchronicles.com. And if you'd like to become an official supporter and help us keep going from strength to strength, we do have a Patreon account, which is at www.patreon.com forward slash keyboard chronicles. A huge thanks, Paul. Uh, sorry, a huge thank you to Paul again for joining me this episode. Yeah, thanks, David. I had a, a great time as always. I really appreciate being invited. Uh, it's, it's always a pleasure. And most importantly, thanks to you for listening and hope to see you back here next episode. <laughs>